one. Good afternoon, colleagues. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, the editor of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, the, the journal for the American Federation of Medical Research. So I'd like to welcome you as members and also other people listening to our podcast who uh, may be thinking about joining the AFMR. The water's great. Please jump in and enjoy it. We have some great meetings coming up. We just had the Western meeting in Carmel. I'm going to the Southern meeting in New Orleans in a week or so, and we've got the East and Midwest. So it's a great time to be uh, seeing new abstracts and new data. And today my podcast uh, is on is in that area. We're trying to update and educate on thyroid disease. And you might ask, gee, Dr. McCallum, why thyroid? Well, we tend to be guided by some of the uh, sort of highlights of the different months. And January is thyroid month. And uh, last year, we had uh, Tamis Bright here, our Associate Professor of Medicine and long-term head of the Endocrinology Division at Texas State University Health Science Center in El Paso. And actual fact, uh, it's a very tough act to follow. She made uh, a record. She has a record for the highest number of podcast uh, calls or podcast uh, contacts since her presentation last uh, January. So I'm sort of challenging her to see whether we can duplicate uh, that uh, huge um, accomplishment of being the best podcast of the year. To reintroduce Tamis to you, um, I often tease her, she came out of the Big Green, which is Dartmouth College, New Hampshire, as far as the colors and uh, their sort of notoriety uh, for recruiting. Uh, then she went to medical school at uh, Loyola University, Stritch School of Medicine, on to San Antonio for internship, residency at uh, Colorado, uh, in those days, I guess, before they knew, moved to their new medical center, but still um, uh, in Denver, and then um, stayed on there to do her fellowship in endocrinology, and then headed back to Texas 19, uh, to be our administrative assistant and associate professor of medicine, and now, since 1995, the chief of endocrinology department and uh, really a pillar of endocrinology in El Paso uh, and in Texas. I have the pleasure of working with Tamas extensively on research activities related to our NIH funded research in diabetes and GI complications. And uh, it's a pleasure to invite her officially to speak about one of her particular, particular uh, interests, which is thyroid disease. Welcome Tamas. Well, thank you, and I'm really excited to be uh, back doing this again, and uh, I hope that people are still interested in thyroid. I think it is uh, just great that people were so interested in it last year, so hopefully, like you said, we, we can follow it with uh, another really interesting talk today. Good. Well, uh, I promised them it would be the, just as good, and uh, I think based on uh, conversations we've had and patients I see myself, even in the GI world, we see our share of thyroid problems. Uh, certainly, although hypo gets a lot of press, everyone's worried about hair loss and weight gain and fatigue. 
let's move over to the other side. Uh, hypothyroidism, an area where there's been some new drug developments in pharmacology and uh, you know, some really changes going on. I thought you might update us on how you manage and approach hypothyroidism. So like we discussed last year, we talked a lot about hypo. So we thought we should give people a little something different to share and talk a little bit about the hyper end of it. Yeah. Hyper obviously isn't as common. So hypo is probably 10% of the population, which is why it gets more uh, activity, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Hyper is probably only about 1%. And like all autoimmune diseases, obviously the women have the preponderance of it. And it is a little bit easier to diagnose because when these patients come in, they're usually symptomatic where your hypo patients, it's a lot of, you're not sure if it really is a disease or whether it's just life because they're tired and gaining weight. Hyper, when it's subtle, can be a little difficult, but most patients come in when they already have palpitations, tremors, anxiety, insomnia. It, they really look like they've been drinking shots of espresso. And those patients are much easier to diagnose. And when we see that going on, then you can order their, their thyroid levels. And in these patients, usually we would get a TSH and at least a uh, free T4. And the, uh, frequently it's worth getting a free T3. And when you can get those lambs back, that TSH is going to be low and the free T4 and potentially the free T3 will be high. The free T3 can be the only one high. We see something called T3 toxicosis where only the T3 is high, but the, the T4 might actually be normal, but the TSH is going to be low no matter what. Now, there are some very, very rare entities where you have a TSH secreting pituitary tumor, and we don't really see those very often, but they show up on everybody's exams. So if you actually see somebody that has high T3 or T4, and that TSH is either normal or high, now you need to be thinking about the pituitary. But at truly, you know, we see one of those every 20 years. So when we talk about things, it's gonna be primary hyperthyroidism, the bulk of which is going to be uh, Graves' disease. And then you will have a handful of people that'll have a hot nodule or a multi-nodular goiter that has some of those nodules uh, making thyroid hormone. So. Once you get those, those levels back, you need to be thinking about a little problem that we, we talked about last time as well, and that's biotin. And biotin has become the, the bane of all of our existences uh, for the last few years because it's in everything. So people are, you know, with the, the COVID universe we're living in, everybody's stressed. And when you're stressed, you have hair loss. And when you have hair loss, Everybody has all these ads out and the hairdressers and whatever said, oh, take biotin. It's good for your hair and nails. And it might be. We actually don't have really any data on that. But the problem for all of us is biotin interferes with our assays. And it's not just endocrine. So it's everybody. It's your PSA. It's your troponins. It's the PTH. And it throws off the machine. It doesn't really do anything specific to, to you. It's how the machine measures it. And if you have patients taking biotin, 
then you have to stop it at least three days before you do any labs, or you're going to get in most assays a artificially low TSH, but some of the assays, it could be the other way. So you really don't know what it's done to your lab. So you just got to make sure that the patient wasn't taking biotin. And assuming they weren't, and that TSH is low and your T3 and or T4 are high, um, you've got hyperthyroidism. And then you got to decide what you're going to do with it. Now, if the patient has Graves' disease, um, they may or may not have eye disease. And if they have eye disease, you're done. You know what it is. Uh, there's nothing else that gives you that proptosis. If they don't have eye disease, then you probably are not going to know just from your thyroid exam necessarily if there could be a hot nodule in there or is it Graves' disease. Uh, potentially you could have a thyroiditis as well, not as common. And um, those thyroiditis uh, can have a, um, a tender gland. The patient will come in with usually cold symptoms having uh, started it, and then they end up with uh, uh, destruction of the gland from the viral illness. So there's a number of things that can do it. And most of the time we end up getting a thyroid scan and uptake. And once we have that, you can tell what you have if you couldn't do it just based on your, your clinical exam and history. And you'll see you know, diffuse uptake everywhere and you've got Graves disease, you'll see a hot nodule on there and nothing else, or you'll see multiple nodules uh, and you've got that toxic multinodular goiter. So, so you usually at that point can say, okay, fine, I've got hyperthyroidism. You can't do the scan if you have the patient on med, so you do need to complete that before you start your, your medication. And then most of the patients we would put on methimazole or on uh, PTU if you had uh, someone that was looking at a pregnancy or were pregnant. Um, but if you had a, a Graves patient with a big goiter, that goiter is not going away when you give a med. So those patients will usually uh, give radioactive iodine to, to fix the problem as well as get rid of uh, the goiter. And then, you know, you adjust that dose, get them euthyroid again. And uh, usually the patient does very well at that point. So um, the, what's, what's your usual dose? So it usually depends upon how um, how active is this then? Do you have levels? We can have levels that are 10 times normal and you know, you're going to put them on a big dose versus somebody that uh, T4 is actually in the upper normal range and the TSH is suppressed. You're going to use a very small dose. Methimazole comes in five and 10 milligrams. So a small dose would be usually 10 milligrams once a day and a big dose would be 40 milligrams a day. So um, so you, you know, you kind of adjust this based on the levels you're, you're looking at at the time. And these patients, as I said, have tremors, they have palpitations. You certainly can put them on beta blockers to control the symptoms, no matter what the cause is, whether it's Graves or it's a thyroiditis. So if they're having a lot of symptoms, usually we'll use propranolol and uh, have the patient kind of dose it to their symptoms with the 10 milligram tablets and do one or two uh, every four to six hours as needed to control the palpitations. Once the levels come down, which usually takes about a month, then they can taper back off the beta blockers. And uh, then you know, you'll check a level probably in a month or so and see where you are and then adjust that dose up or down accordingly until you get them uh, controlled. And then you know, as time goes on, usually you can keep dropping the dose down and down and down. 
And a lot of that has to do with the antibody levels. Usually they'll, they'll kind of gradually decline and you can decrease the dose over time. If that gland wasn't that big, uh, frequently after a year or two, you can stop it and the disease resolves. Now, if they had a big goiter, that's unlikely to happen. Problem is with all autoimmune diseases, stress you know, makes antibodies uh, go up again and occasionally they'll end up back with uh, hyperthyroidism and you start over again, but they know what it was, you know, the second time around. So they'll call and, you know, get treated right away. So you're saying these sort of uh, ability to resolve over months, uh, is this a nodule that sort of burns out and resolves, but the thyroid is not totally hypo or is this disease patient? So that's more for Graves disease. So if you have somebody with a, a hot nodule, yeah, then when we do that scan, we'll look at that and see hot nodules, if they're active enough, will shut off the uh, rest of the gland. So it will suppress the function of the rest of the gland. And as long as the, the patient isn't pregnant, those we usually do treat with radioactive iodine because that nodule is the only thing that'll pick up the iodine because the rest of the gland's non-functional. Mm-hmm. And then you can basically fry the nodule and it's gone and the patient's cured and it doesn't come back and it's fine. Multi-nodular goiters with lots of nodules in there are a little bit trickier because it, they don't frequently suppress the whole gland. So if you give radioactive iodine, you're potentially going to make the patient hypothyroid. We do that occasionally, but it would be relatively uncommon to do that. Uh, Those patients usually require a small dose of methimazole. And over time, the nodule that you're treating may burn out and stop functioning and you can stop the med. The problem is six months later, another one of these things could start up and make thyroid hormones. So they're kind of on and off again meds. If they have a big enough goiter and they're getting compressive symptoms from it, surgery is an option for those guys as well. For the average hypothyroid uh, case, do you get a thyroid scan? And if you, if you can't palpate anything except it's maybe tender, do you get a thyroid scan? Usually we do, because if we're thinking radioactive iodine, the iodine's dosed off the uptake, so we need the scan and uptake anyway. The only ones we don't usually scan are someone that clearly has thyroiditis because they're going to have no uptake. So people that come into the ER with a bunch of symptoms and they have a very painful, painful sore throat, it's, it's very classic. You don't need a scan to diagnose that. Um, if you have a nodule, you still need a scan because that nodule may not be the problem. And that nodule may actually be a non-functional nodule need a biopsy where the hot nodule is something that you couldn't palpate. So, so those we do uh, the scans in. And like I said, the Graves disease, if they have eye disease, we don't have to do a scan because we know it's eye disease. And if you have eye disease, we don't usually use radioactive iodine because it can frequently make the eye disease worse. So we don't need the, the scan for the dosing and we don't need the scan for the diagnosis. So then we would not do that. Well, uh, tell us a bit about the new pharmacology that may be evolving in the hypothyroid world. 
So the, the new treatment that we have is something called Tepeza, um, which is a new monoclonal for the eye disease, for Graves' disease. So for years, we've, we've struggled with Graves' eye disease, and it can be very significant, and the patient can have uh, double vision and can have some you know, significant loss of function for life just because of this severe eye disease. High-dose steroids have been the mainstay of treatment, but the problem is as soon as you taper them down, now it comes back. Uh, you can do orbital decompressive surgery and knock out walls of the orbit to make the orbit bigger. And again, you know, it's not a great therapy. Uh, but this monoclonal came out uh, about a year ago and has been phenomenally good. So it is incredibly expensive. So getting the hoops jump through for the insurance to cover is tricky. Uh, but it's a... Uh, IV course of this every three weeks for about eight doses and the patients get very rapid improvement of the eye disease, which at that point seems to maintain. So it has been a phenomenal new treatment for us. Uh, you're using it selectively because of expense or can we get pre-authorizations? Is it a real chore to, to make this really happen or do you, it's do, it's uh, a chore so yeah. um it frequently requires uh, the last patient i did i actually had one of my colleagues do because he had a better uh person to do it than i did uh, mm -hmm. ophthalmology is pretty much not doing it because it takes so much of their time that they're uh, sending it back to us even though they're the ones that are doing the uh, the diagnosis mm -hmm. and getting us the the ophthalmologic criteria that you need prior to actually treating the patient. So we need them to tell us the, you know, there's various scoring criteria for this and ophthalmology does that. So, so yes, it, it is one of the most tricky drugs to get uh, these days, but I think it is, is worth the hassle for the patients for sure. And the scoring is based on some TSH T4 ratio? It's based no, on, no, no, on no. the scan? Oh, or? I, eye exam. So this is eye how bad is the, the eye exam. So first of all, you have to have Graves' eye disease, but yeah. ophthalmology sees the patient and determines how bad that eye disease is based on criteria that they have. And then they send us a report. So the, uh, the, the more severe the eye disease, perhaps you'd lean towards this, this antibody. Right. So if they had very mild disease, frequently we don't need to do anything that's just kind of a lot of times the patients don't even notice you notice on your exam but mm. they're not having any any double vision they're really not having any uh uh problems with the, the eyes being pushed forward get very dry so you can get corneal uh, drying and uh, corneal abrasions so you know if they're not having anything at all and you're just looking at very mild proptosis then it's probably not worth doing unless it's it's progressive. But but those that have severe eye disease, then yes, it definitely would be uh, something to do. All right, Timus, so let's, let's go to five minutes or so left on uh, obviously a topic that's always on people's mind, thyroid cancer. Why don't you give us a little update on the perspective, how rare is it, and um, what's your threshold for being uh, sort of inquisitive and doing diagnostic tests? Well, thyroid cancer is incredibly common, and it, uh, again, is more common in women. 
Um, the thing with thyroid cancer is we all see these patients because we're, we're diagnosing over 40,000 patients with thyroid cancer every year. But um, there's a 98% five-year survival rate with thyroid cancer. So that means that if you have that many every year, we've got almost a million people living in the U.S. with thyroid cancer. So we're all seeing patients that have thyroid cancer. Uh, it's the seventh most common cancer in women, and I believe it's about 10 for men currently. So uh, you really need to be palpating that thyroid gland because it is uh, obviously very common. And if you're finding those nodules, again, uh, it's check a TSH and make sure they're not hyper like we just talked about. You do not want to biopsy patients that have hot nodules. Hot nodules are never cancer. So these are the cold nodules or the ones that are non-functional. And if you do a biopsy and it comes back as uh, thyroid cancer, then we can cure these patients. So the majority of these cancers that we see are either stage one or stage two. And uh, if you are under 55 and you have differentiated thyroid cancer, meaning papillary or follicular thyroid cancer, if you are under 55, they're all stage one, unless you have metastatic disease, and that only makes you a stage two. And your survival with stage one or stage two disease is nearly 100%. And that's why the survival with this is uh, so good. And we end up doing a thyroidectomy and usually a total thyroidectomy for most patients uh, because you're really not biopsying these nodules until they're over a centimeter. And usually if the, the tumor was over a centimeter, you needed to do a total. Uh, sometimes we'll have ones that really are confined to a lobe uh, and there's clearly no nodes, no invasion, then you potentially could do a lobe for some of these patients. But the majority of the patients need a total thyroidectomy done. And it's only if they have extensive disease and they actually have uh, nodal disease, they've got metastatic disease, that then you're using radioactive iodine. Most of these patients need a total thyroidectomy that they need to be put on thyroid hormone and that cures the, the bulk of these patients. And the problem is that it, because it's a very slow growing, almost indolent cancer that we end up following them for the next 10 years to make sure that they don't have a recurrence. And we needed to see them anyway to, to monitor their thyroid levels, but uh, you, you end up doing ultrasounds uh, every six months initially and probably yearly, and then space them out after that. But for the, the people that are in the, the, the patient's clinics, you just need to be aware that we, we follow these guys for a long time and we keep that TSH toward the low end of normal. And sometimes if they have uh, still bulk disease, we have that TSH below normal and we want it below normal. So if you're thinking about changing our dose, uh, call the endocrinologist before uh, you change the dose in there. And be very cognizant about people uh, that have a neck mass and you're ordering a CT scan with contrast because we're gonna use radioactive iodine if that neck mass ends up being thyroid cancer. And if they had a contrast CT, uh, we can't do our radioactive iodine for at least a couple of months. So it ends up delaying therapy. Or if you had a thyroid cancer patient that you didn't know that we had planned a radioactive iodine treatment and then they came in I don't know, for some abdominal pain or something. And then somebody mm -hmm. ordered a CT with contrast, 
you know, we've really screwed up their management. So it's something to think about when you see these patients that have, uh, you know, either thyroid cancer or they came in complaining of that neck mass. Did you really, really need that contrast CT if you're thinking maybe it was thyroid? So, so those are, those are some tidbits about the thyroid cancer. How about uh, post-surgery? Do we assume everyone's hypoparathyroid as well? Is that part of surgery? Well, we hope not. So unless that uh, disease was very extensive, uh, they shouldn't end up hypopara. It does happen, obviously, but the majority of the patients don't. Uh, sometimes we have big bulk disease and the parathyroids are involved in the tumor mass and, you know, they got to go just to get the tumor out of there and then they end up hypopara. So at that point they need, uh, calcitriol and calcium, and they're relatively easy to, to manage at that point. Uh, but majority of the patients are not going to end up uh, hypopara. Now, if we're going to keep that TSH suppressed, we do put them on calcium because you're talking about bone loss. And as I said, you know, most of these are women. You don't want to end up with early osteoporosis from, uh, you know, having mm-hmm. the, the TSH suppressed if they were left with some uh, bulk disease in there. And we do have chemotherapy that works very well now with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So we have a handful that are actually very good for thyroid cancer. So these patients that have metastatic disease, we do have a solution for them as well. Some of them we just watch. I have patients that have lung mets and we just watch them. And frequently, if you keep the TSH suppressed, those lung mets don't grow. And if it doesn't grow, it's not going to hurt you. So it is a cancer that we can actually do surveillance on. Sometimes if they have a very small nodule, you can actually follow them with just ultrasound and not do the surgery. So if you have somebody that had a biopsy of maybe a half a centimeter nodule, uh, you know, you could just watch that. So it's a very interesting cancer. Where do the metastases tend to go? Uh, We talk about midline bone. Where where do they tend to go? The majority, so we're talking about the, the, the papillary, which is the, the majority of the thyroid cancers. It's, it's first local, so the, the lymph nodes in the, in the neck, uh, so mainly central compartment and then uh, up the, the cervical chain. Mm-hmm. From there, usually it's lung mets, and then uh, you can have bone mets, but most of the time it uh, would be, be local disease and then out and it'll invade the strap muscles occasionally. Uh, and then, then lung mets is our, our usual place to find it. Well, Thomas, uh, thank you very much. Time has flown by. We, uh, we've learned a lot as usual. I know our audience, I'm sure, has benefited from your time. And um, I can't wait for, thyro- for thyroid month next January to come around again. Maybe we can find an excuse to get you involved at, with diabetes month, of, of which you're very, very uh, savvy as well, as I've learned personally. So on behalf of the AFMR and our members, uh, thank you for um, a great presentation. Well, thank you again, and I'll hope to do one next year. So, colleagues, I'm going to be signing off on our podcast. You can go to the website and see our last year's podcast. We did 13. We try to do one a month. I'm certainly interested in hearing any favorite topics you might have that I could perhaps pursue with a speaker, or you may volunteer to be a speaker yourself anytime. Uh, Please um, contribute to our journal. 
encourage your colleagues to become members and attend our upcoming meetings, either virtually or live. So once again, colleagues, um, signing off for our January podcast, Richard McCallum, Editor-in-Chief of Journal Investigative Medicine, um, thanking you for your time and look forward to seeing you soon. Good afternoon.